Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, February 2nd. We have a big announcement, but we also have an interview with Miles Udland. Uh, what do we want to talk about first, the uh, interview or our big announcement? Um, yeah, we can do the announcement first. And it's also our 100th episode, so congratulations oh, right. for anyone that's come along. Hopefully we can get, I don't know, to some other random milestones along the way. Uh, that's our 100th Tuesday episode. Tuesday We've episode, done, like, yeah. like yeah. probably – 300 or so shows all together. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but big yeah, I guess we should start. Yeah, the big announcement. Uh, we have a small fund going. Mm-hmm. The smallest fund probably in America. But, <laughs> but no, it is yeah. going. It is going and it has started. It's called Arch Capital. And the only reason we're saying this on the show is as a full disclosure. Right. Um, you know, we have, we're legal now. We got, we are. We got problems with, uh, you know, disclosures and all that crap. So, uh, we, it's trying to change much of the show. We just want you guys to know that it, we're not going to be like, just don't take our advice. Yeah. Like as always, as always, don't take anything we say on the show as financial advice. As always, you know, there could be, you know, clients of our partnership could have, you know, funds invested in a stock that we talk about. We'll try not to talk about something. Sound like a disclosure. Oh, that's what the disclosure says. I'm just reading off the script. But okay. yeah, we don't want to talk about this too much. Uh, we'll talk about the interview next, right? Yeah, and it was fun. Uh, Miles is a good guy to just break down the uh, sort of the – really, we just talked about GameStop and sort of some of the froth that's going on, I guess you could say. And um, Yeah, and he is an anchor at Yahoo Finance, so he's yeah. dealing with kind of the biggest news in the market every day. Yeah. Um, this GameStop stuff is tiring. But we hope we didn't, you know, just repeat the same record. But yeah, I don't know. I'm exhausted. Yeah, there from is this a lot of GameStop stuff, stuff uh, especially in the interview. But we try not to talk about it, hopefully, on the show. But uh, before we move on to the show, and we have a new disclosure, by the way, so feel free to listen in. Uh, oh, yeah, huge. Uh, huge. Over the music. Huge stuff. Uh, sales pitch. Use our code CCM at 7investing. They just had their new recommendations come out, and I like them a lot. Also, Austin has moved on. Rip. But congrats. Um, he's so, on, yeah, he's on that Emerging Managers program, which right. yeah, we'll be rooting for him. Yep. Uh, the, um, yeah, I don't know. They had a great mix of stocks. Uh, you can get it for 7 bucks for the first one, so it's 10 bucks off the first month. You can check them out. It's timely. They only do it once a month, and this is right when they announce them. So. Okay. Uh, without further ado, here you go. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, welcome in. I'm kicking things off with, I guess we didn't say our stories in the intro, but uh, my story is, is Facebook the ultimate sin stock? I'm just basically talking about earnings and have a few questions. What are you talking about? Uh, I'm going to talk about the DTCC, which is the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. They were kind of a big part of the news this week with Robinhood, and a lot of people don't know what they do, so I thought it would be good to learn about it. Um, yeah. 
Okay, I'll kick things off. Uh, Facebook reported full year earnings this week, and uh, they looked really good. So I'm going to go through some of those numbers. Revenue was $86 billion for the year, up 22% year over year. Other revenue, so not advertising, actually grew to almost $2 billion. I imagine a lot of that's from Oculus sales. Likely, yep. Um, and then operating income was about $33 billion for the quarter, up 36% year over year. So that's almost 40% operating margins. Um up, uh, what else? Uh, 1.84 billion daily active users, up 11%. 2.8 billion monthly active users, still growing at 12%. I don't even know how that's possible. Yeah. Um, uh, how many people are in the world again? What, 8 uh, billion seven, right now? Seven, seven. I think it might be up now. But it's, uh, I think it's, it's seven. Every if, day. if it was seven like a few years ago, I don't think a billion it, it grew a billion then. That's but you could be an right. absurd amount of people. I don't understand how they're still growing double digits. Um well more people are getting smartphones around the world, so Yeah. Keep growing. Yes. Um but they have sixty two billion in cash and cash equivalents at the end of the quarter, no long term debt. They authorized another twenty five billion in share repurchases by the end of twenty twenty two on top of the nine billion still remaining uh, from their last share repurchase announcement, and their enterprise, they traded an enterprise value of less than twenty times current operating cash flow. No? They seem cheap. The numbers seem incredible, um, but obviously there is that tail risk and some headwinds that are coming up. And so I took a quote from the conference call. Actually, a really interesting conference call. I encourage everyone to go read it. But Zuckerberg kind of took some shots at Apple a little bit. He said. Now, since I try to use these earnings calls to discuss aspects of the business strategy that I think are important to investors or for investors to understand, I do want to highlight that we increasingly see Apple as one of our biggest competitors. iMessage is a key linchpin of their ecosystem. It comes pre-installed on every iPhone and they preferenced it with private APIs and permissions, which is why iMessage is the most used messaging service in the US. And now we are also seeing Apple's business depend more and more on gaining share in apps and services against us and other developers. So Apple has every incentive to use their dominant platform position to interfere with how our apps and other apps work, which they regularly do to preference their own. And this impacts the growth of millions of businesses around the world, including with the upcoming iOS 14 changes, many small businesses will no longer be able to reach their customers with targeted ads. So everyone knows about sort of the uh, crackdown on data collection that Apple's uh, sort of, uh, I don't think they've released it yet, but they announced that it's going to come out with their new update. And part of me thinks, yes, this is hurting small businesses like Zuck said, but I think it's really more concerning to Zuck that maybe this is going to be a huge pitfall uh, or yeah. a huge headwind coming up for their business. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. The proof will be in the pudding if the small businesses start complaining, oh, we're, our business isn't doing as well. Yeah. I mean, in reality, you know, you could also frame this as, all right, well, small businesses won't be able to spend as much on Facebook, yeah. you know. So it, it's, in their comp- it's in Facebook's best interest to do this. So I, I don't think it's surprising that they take this position, but it's also in Apple's best interest to do the same. We'll see how the antitrust kind of comes down on them, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's going to be a fun battle. It's kind of shaping up. You would have thought it would have been uh, either Facebook versus Google or Apple versus Google for other parts of the business, but it's really kind of turned into Facebook versus Apple. Um, that's how yeah. they're shaping it. It's going to be like, all right, we're arming the power of the small businesses. We're trying to make it so everyone can do blah, 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 connect with all the stuff that they like to talk about over at Facebook and then Apple. 
um, is going to say that we're the privacy-centric business, but then Facebook's going to say, well, no, you're just trying to make everything first party. You're not making this an open, open ecosystem, stuff like that. Yeah, and there is there's definitely some merit to that because we've seen Spotify go through the same sort of struggles. Uh, I think Epic Games just had their sort of lawsuit with them as well. Do yes. you think do you think people give Apple more credit, or do you think they get a better sort of brand reputation than they deserve? Because uh, everyone loves them, and they think it. Everyone thinks privacy and security, and then I mean, no one's reputation is as bad as Facebook's. Yeah, I, I don't just really don't see how Facebook wins that. Yeah, the reputation with Apple is clearly better than Facebook, even though like on on FinTwit, there's a lot of people that talk about Facebook how they're actually doing fine and whatever. You know, it's not as bad. Apple isn't perfect at all, but it is about that reputation in the marketplace. Um, I don't know. I, I've never really, you know, I'm one of those guys that doesn't really care for Apple products that much, so. I don't know. It's hard to tell. Okay, so part of the reason I brought this up is because Facebook is trading at a favorable multiple if they were to continue sort of the growth rate that they yeah. have been having. Um, yeah, I mean, if they grow earnings at 100% or sorry, you know, if they double earnings over the next three to five years, that's a very, very cheap multiple. Um, but, but you got to ask if they're going to continue to grow. And if people, so if some of the users have to choose to accept data harvesting because apparently i think that's part of the new oh, upgrade is? you have to okay. choose to accept it how much <laughs> i don't think they call it data harvesting they call it targeted whatever. marketplace or whatever yeah um i mean that's they said in the conference call they're expecting a large people to reject it a large group of people to reject it and i would imagine like 90 percent of people are like yeah no i don't want that yeah it, it doesn't that completely like destroy their business model? I don't think it destroys them. It just maybe their ads, CPMs, or however they call that might drop a bit because they can definitely still advertise. There's no problem with advertising. It's just without less this, it might targeted. It, it might be less effective. That's the thing. We'll see though. Right. Uh, okay. Start looking at your Instagram feed if you're getting advertisements for something random that has nothing to do with you. Maybe it's not working as well because you have seen on like Instagram. Those ads, I, I'm not Instagram, but you've mentioned before that the ads are really, really strong. So Yeah. All right. Well, that was kind of – I had some more questions, but it's kind of around sin stock stuff. Not really uh, worth the time. Uh, yeah. I mean, I it, it, it should be in the sin stock category. If they continue to grow for the foreseeable future, it probably will continue to be at a discount just because people don't like it, right? Yeah. And that could be good for shareholders. Um, what but it seems different because it doesn't – they haven't proven that it's a permanent business. It's not like – you know what I mean? Yeah. What do you think is worse? What What do you think is a worse sin stock, Ultra or Facebook? Mm, okay. So, Ultra, and I know Matt, Ultra, if Matt Cochran is listening right now, <laughs> yeah, close your cringy, close your ears, sorry. Man. Uh, but uh, I don't know. They're probably fairly equal. The thing about Ultra and those type of products is that they're probably more harmful to the individual. But for what Facebook, consent? but Facebook, yeah, yeah. So it's like, all right, you're just harming yourself. It's a personal choice. It typically won't affect others unless you're doing it around children, which you can't do. Uh, but Facebook seems more of a societal type issue, right? We're kind of it's kind of hard to see why it's a sin stock. People probably see it. You know, there's been all the documentaries and research on it, but it's completely different. Um, I, I don't know which one's worse, but it's I know what one I think is a more reliable business, and that's you know cigarettes. But okay, all right. Uh, what's your story again? Uh, the DTCC, have you ever heard of this before? Uh, I feel like I saw it 
on Twitter a few times this week, but yeah. uh, no, explain it. Please. Yeah, so the clearing houses and brokerages are all over the news. It's I think you know people want to understand how this stuff works um, and what the DTC is or DTCC. Uh, the, it stands for the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, and they're a conglomerate of multiple. Uh, what you might call it, clearing houses and stuff like that. But the main thing they do is they're the backbone for brokerages and other places that trade financial instruments. So they typically uh, do trillions in dollar volume a day. So all the you know the apps and the mortgage or sorry not the mortgages, the investment banks use this you know stuff like that. They're all going through this and settling with this clearinghouse. So their purpose is to you know quote settle trades. That's how it's described between buyers and sellers. So when you are you buy a share of something on your trading platform as an individual, the DTC func- DTCC excuse me functions by adjusting the share count owned by each brokerage. So if a brokerage is buying a stock, it adds that to its account at DTCC, and if it sells a stock, the DTCC adds cash to its account. Uh, why does this exist is probably a question people have. Why don't brokerages do it themselves? Uh, they, it's kind of a safety net or an insurance theoretically to make sure all transactions go through regardless of whether a brokerage goes under. All right. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then the settlement date is what makes it interesting. So the settlement date is always or typically whatever the rule is two days after the transaction occurs, which is why when you sell something, you can't access the cash immediately in your account. You have to wait a few business days or two, excuse me. All right. Okay, yeah, I'm following. And then the DTCC requires brokerages to post collateral for their transactions in case the settlement date has a different price. So this is what happened when Wall Street bets crowded into GameStop. Robinhood didn't have the collateral needed to back up those shares, especially with the increased volatility of those Uh, shares. So when the settlement date occurs, it might have totally screwed over some of the parties in these transactions. And with over 50% of Robinhood users buying GameStop, that could really put a lot of their funds at jeopardy. So it's Robinhood so, responsible for that collateral. It's not the clearinghouse. They just want to Robin make sure has Robinhood. to post collateral in case DTCC has to execute the trades or do whenever they cl- finally clear the transactions. If the prices are totally different and, and super volatile and stuff like that, that can be a concern. And it's also a concern when a lot of users are on one side of the trade. You know what I'm saying? Right. Because then you have to, you know, buy the shares, and then when you actually get the cash transactions again, I, I don't know exactly how the, ex- you know, the exchange for shares and stuff like that works. That's a little above my pay grade. I know there's a ton of steps that go down with that, but that, you know, there's concern there. Uh, so this is what happened when they came into here. It's why they restricted trading on GameStop, um, and it also puts, it also forces brokerages to put up more collateral if users buy on margin. So that was likely a mistake that Robin had made, uh, allowing users to go on margins so much, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that, I mean, that is, you know, Robin has to blame for that, but the DTCC still has to cover and, you know, make sure this company has the collateral needed, the funds needed to so they don't go under. And it is why they raised about $3.4 billion over the past week. <laughs> No, that was for investing in user growth. That was, yeah, they, yeah, investing in liquidity. Uh, but so, you know, a lot of people out there are blaming Citadel. They do have, Robinhood does have a suspicious relationship with Citadel and the high frequency traders and the payment for order flow, and that should probably be investigated. But in this situation, they were just trying to make sure they didn't fail, you know? Yeah. 
uh, my problem is why didn't Vlad Tenev come out and say that? Well, I don't like think he should have. If he would have just said like, "Hey, we have collateral requirements that we can't meet when everyone's on the same side of the trade," yeah, but I don't think he wants to tell Wall Street bets that if you continue to do this or whatever, you know what I mean. And he also doesn't want to scare people uh, to have a run on Robinhood. It would be like a run on the bank because if everyone starts selling and stuff like that, there is this. There's a chance, you know, if, if everyone starts doing something, I know brokerages are a lot different than banks and, ba- you know, there there's insurance behind everything and the SIPC insurance, but there is that risk if everyone starts leaving, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it, he wasn't very forthcoming with how it was actually going. Yeah. I don't, I know his hands were tied, but he built the problem. He made oh, yeah. it so well, they frictionless did, yeah. Yeah. and so easy and it, like it. It seemed good in terms of growing customers, but I mean, I think you made it too inviting, too gamified. <laughs> we talked about this with Bill Brewster. I think we might have even talked about it with Miles. When you gamify that experience so much and it's so easy to sign on and create an account, are you surprised that you were the number one trading app? Yeah, I know. When well, a bubble emerges? like well, my, my friend uh, who was signing up was like, you know this? This app is so green, man. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It is so green. They make it like just pop right at right yeah. at you. But it seems like the biggest mistakes that Robin had made was uh, you know, signing up for options, which we've gone over. It was so easy for us to sign up for options, and I assume everyone I that signed up like was extremely checklist. easy. It was definitely, yeah, whatever they did was not on the up and up. And they also allowed people to go on margin way too easily. Those two combinations were what screwed them. And they took a lot of risk. I don't really know why, you know, I mean, they get, they're getting yeah. bailed out by their investors, which is fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how capitalism works. But they took a lot of risk. Sometimes you get a lot of reward from it, but uh, you take a lot of risk. You yeah. know, these are All the right. consequences. All right. Current state of FinTwit. Um, I, I don't want to just go on and on about Wall Street bets. So do you have anything better? Uh, okay. Well, there has been a lot of debates about the Melvin Capital, which is a part of this, but separate. You know, of how like, okay, there's a lot of people out there defending Melvin Capital and these long short funds that got caught up in these trades, right? With the Mm -hmm. short positions. What are your thoughts on that? Because I got some, but I want to hear what you think. Uh, Well, honestly, I don't pay much attention to shorting. So I'm sorry if I don't totally understand how the process works, but I, I don't like, shouldn't there have been more proper risk management on their side? It just feels... Like, uh, there is a chance for any stock to do this. Yeah. And we know the the power that social media has on groupthink and being able to get an army essentially together to do something at once. I don't know if I feel that bad for Melvin Capital. Yeah. And the, there's a lot of people out there defending them and others who are, they're like, well, they're putting up 30% returns over the last five years. And it's like, yeah. You put on a lot of risk to get those 30% returns. It doesn't mean you got unlucky when a situation like this happens when you are super levered and the downside event occurs. It's like, yeah, should I be able to charge 2 and 20 for the TQQQ, the 3x levered you know, NASDAQ ETF? I mean, in a bull market, I like fantastic, but then you get an 80% drawdown. you know, Or yeah. if you get a 30% drawdown in the NASDAQ, I mean, you're, you're looking pretty bad. I don't know. I just don't think like... They're like, yeah, these guys are good investors. Like, are they though? If you're taking on all this risk, 
I don't think it makes you like, you just, know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, well, their historical returns were great. It's, you know, yeah. well, at the end of the day, who cares? Yeah. If they lose money in the end, that was them taking on, yeah, you're right. That's them taking on the risk. And finally, the downside came. Yeah. Um, all right. How's your bit, no Bitcoin, no Tesla thing been going? It's tough. You know that I can't comment on those things specifically, <laughs> but you know that or you may have not seen the rest of the development. You know the, the the gif where the guy's like, "I've made a huge mistake." That's kind of what I've been thinking of. It's been there's been too many developments. You know, I don't earnings season too. I like how Tesla had earnings and no, like can't comment. No one even cared about Tesla earnings, which is unheard of. Yeah, well, I don't care either. <laughs> I can't comment on. When does it end? February twelfth. Oh gosh, you got the date right in mind. Yeah, All right. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, okay. So two things. First of all, uh, McMurtry, Dan McMurtry, at SuperMugatu, I think is still his Twitter handle, had a tweet this week that said the golden age of short selling is coming. I was thinking about this, and I I know this is basically what he was implying, but don't you think that bidding up, g- getting a group together, bidding up assets, dying businesses, basically? I'm sorry. But there's no – if you look at like historical financials on GameStop and AMC, it, they yeah. don't look good. They could pivot. They could pivot. <laughs> buying, we talk with Nick Seipel yeah. about it, but you know the existing business is tough. But buying them as a group, trying to bid up the asset well above what it's worth, I don't think that necessarily deters short selling. It just deters them from announcing it publicly. If anything, it incentivizes it, doesn't it? Like yeah. everyone's going to see that eventually these things are going to revert. Yeah, I mean, you I would have the time horizon to like uh, endure it. Yeah, if you got a little bit ahead of the game and you bought some put options on GameStop about three months from now, I think you. I think I don't. We don't do that. I don't do that typically. But I, I think that's a pretty easy trade to make, depending on what premium or what you know what the cost basis is going to be on those put options. But also. Yeah. Uh, did you see the Scott Galloway stuff this week? I, I assume yeah. you did. <laughs> he's a he's a little bit uh. I, I like Scott tough. Galloway, but I could not stop. Like, what was the whole sex talk about? Like, it's a tough. I don't lo- think every Robin Hood trader is like, well, since I'm not having sex, I'm gonna go to the casino. Like, yeah. that's not what's happening. I feel like he's going a little crazy on us, and I like I I do like him. I have liked him, and it's been hard because a lot of people have contrary takes. Oh, a lot of people uh, don't like him. A lot of people don't like him. I, I mean, to be honest, he has a lot of takes on like Peloton and stuff that didn't work out. But I mean, if you look at his investment track record on stuff he actually invests in, it's pretty good. Yeah, he's gone off the rails the last few months. I don't know if it's COVID. We need to get him back in like school. But yeah, I hope he's doing okay because he's got the internet mob coming after him. I feel like if you're like an NYU student showing up next semester, you're like, <laughs> yeah, like. Uh, Gosh. I hope he, yeah. I, I chose not to have sex on here. I I do not. <laughs> yeah, I I don't understand his takes there. Um, there are some good subtweets too. Yeah, there <laughs> there are right. a, a lot of people do not. A lot of people on FinTwit like that inverse Galloway ETF type deal. Um, yeah. I I don't support it, but. <laughs> All right. Um. Anything else for current state of FinTwit? Nope. Okay. I one. Next up, we have our interview with Miles Udland. Any highlights for you? Um, to be honest, uh, we did it in the the mayhem of last week. Uh, so we I honestly forget yeah. what we even talked about, but it was fun. 
Uh, love to have Miles back on again. And yeah, definitely. I don't know. Yeah, it's not like we're. It's different than like a conversation with Seven Investing where we're talking about individual securities. But this one was fun as well. Yeah. Yeah, I like the. Uh, I kind of like the SPAC conversation as well. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, we talked GameStop, obviously, but uh, that one was fun for me. Yeah, the SPAC one. Yeah, kind of opening up our eyes to uh, how they might not be evil. You know, we <laughs> they we, get a bad rap. Yeah, we give them a bad rap. But um, all right. Uh, without further ado, here you go. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? All blocked, thanks to advanced security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Today we are welcomed by Miles Udland. Miles is an anchor for Yahoo Finance, a uh, popular FinTwit personality. He also has a sub stack called Late. Am I getting all that right? That's right. Okay. Uh, welcome to the show. Why don't you give us sort of your background? So what got you into finance to begin with? Yeah, thanks, boys, for having me. Um so I uh, graduated college 2012 with a degree in English. And I was like, all right, here goes the world. And basically, a um, friend of a friend knew a uh, small financial newswire company. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Some listeners may have heard of it called The Fly on the Wall. Um, it's run out of Summit, New Jersey. It's run by the main guy I used to be on Wall Street back in the day. And essentially just a newswire. It's like a cheap version of a Bloomberg. And my job was to sit in front of three screens and clip press releases, take out all the extraneous words and distill them into short bits that go on the feed. And this is, you know, the fly still does this today. So earnings season, great example. It's like, you know, press release comes over and it says, you know, Honeywell today announces stellar results, first quarter, yada, yada, yada. So the job is cut all that stuff out, Honeywell reports, X earnings per share, estimate, X, publish. Um, okay. So if you do that for, I guess I was there two years. So if you do that for seven, eight quarters, you start to internalize, you know, I mean, I didn't know what time the market opened when I started this job. So you start to learn a lot of things, you learn about uh, earnings, all that good stuff. Um, and from there, uh, you know, I was reading all the things everybody reads. But at that time, BI was Business Insider was like the thing. And, you know, Joe Eisenthal, Sam Rowe, uh, that was kind of peak BI before, you know, before it sold to Axel. And I saw they were hiring. So I sent Sam an email and that was kind of, kind of the rest from there. And, you know, Sam's still my editor over at Yahoo. So two of us have been working together almost seven years now, but um, yeah, that's the, that's the short version of, of how I got here. I like that um, I'm described as a, Fintwit personality. That's a great, uh, great life yeah, accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll take that one all day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and what do you guys do at? Uh, well, what do you do at Yahoo Finance now? As like an anchor, um, do you are you doing? I think you do a newsletter with them too. Like, what what is the job like there? Yeah. So Yahoo Finance is, has eight hours of live streaming on the site. So the where it is now on the site, I guess if you go to the homepage, if you pull it up um, during market hours from nine to five when we're live. There'll be like one main story up top and then right underneath it will be the video player um, and in there. So that's um, 
that's where we are. I do it from nine to 11. Um, Julie Hyman and Brian Sazi are anchoring it with me. And I mean, it's a pretty standard, you know, version of a business media show. I think it's a little bit looser than certainly looser than what you're going to find at Bloomberg. Definitely a little looser, I think, um, than what's on CNBC. Um, but you know, it's the same run of, um, CEOs, executives, um, strategist types. Uh, I, you know, I don't think it's perfect. I don't think that that model for anything of linear streaming, whether it's on the internet or on television is perfect, no matter where you go. I don't really know where it goes from here, but you know, that's the gig for, you know, that's the gig for now. And yeah. And then me and Sam write the morning brief newsletter um, for Yahoo. And that goes out, that goes out at six in the morning, but we, we like to write it the day before because we don't want it to just be reacting to the news this week, obviously is a little more challenging. Um, but we have found that if you challenge yourself to write something that will still be relevant 16 or 18 hours later, you're going to deliver to subscribers something that's different than, Hey, these three companies are reporting earnings or, Hey, here's the story that, you know, everyone knows about. You have to look at the 44th chart in, you know, the Binky Chata Deutsche Bank note. You can't just say, here's, you know, here's two things, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, and for reference, if you're listening to this, this coming out Tuesday, but we are recording this uh, the Thursday prior. So this was the big Robin Hood band GameStop day. Uh, so we will get into that in a little bit. Uh, should, we, should we get a price check on GameStop shares before we get going yeah. here? Or is it a, yeah, I think they, they hit the close, right? I had a, <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, yeah, you check it on Robin. Can you check it on Robin Hood now? Is that? Oh, you can't. I usually just use Google like a loser. Yeah. 193.60 was the close today and it's up 20% after hours, 234. But All right. Um, Down 44%? So, typical volatility. <laughs> so there's there's the reference check for the listeners on, on where we were at in stock market history when we sat down to have this conversation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before we get to that stuff, let's talk a little bit about SPACs. Uh, you referenced this in your latest sub stack and there's a lot of hype around SPACs right now. I think there was some figure of like an absurd amount of SPACs coming out within the first month of 2021. Uh, do you think SPACs actually help level the playing field for retail investors? Because that's sort of the claim is like you're getting these companies earlier than you'd get with an IPO. So you know, so I, I, wrote a, I wrote a newsletter um, last summer that was about why there should be more public companies. Um, and, you know, Mike Mobison over at Morgan Stanley has, has done a lot of work on this. I'm, I'm guessing you guys have seen some of the charts of the number of public listed stocks over time. It was like 7,500, 8,000 a couple decades ago. And now it's um, like 3,800, right? There's like 3,800 stocks in the Wilshire 5,000. Um, so I made the argument there should be more public companies. And um, I, I guess I got my answer. You know, now there are now there are SPACs. So who am I to complain about the form through which they go public? But um, I, I mean, I, I do. I mean, I don't know. I think that the SPAC concept does a lot of what the proponents of it claim it does. So it does bring companies to market at an earlier stage. Um, I think there's an interesting conversation to be had around what disclosures it requires when, you know, it allows you to put out a deck of projections that you cannot do as part of the S1 process, though at some point in the SPAC process, you also have to file a formal S1. The problem is it's the secondary document, not the primary document. So I don't think most investors read the full S1. They see the deck that shows 
it's basically the SoftBank chart, um, yeah. you know, of the WeWork turnaround, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the SPAC f- format is okay. I, I mean, I don't exactly, the thing though is like sitting here today, given what's happened the last two weeks, I'm not sure, and I don't know where you guys come down on this, I'm not sure how it plays into this retail phenomenon as we know it now. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I think it's it gives another... I mean, okay, their early stage, it allows like investors to almost go at it like a VC mindset, uh, but that's tough. You got to have like a 10 year time horizon. You got to be able to, you know, cover some losses, stuff like that. And it makes it easy, I think, to be highly speculative. I don't know. What yeah. You think, Brian? And you mentioned WeWork who tried to sneak their SPAC in today, right? Uh, they is now, yeah, they announced a rumor. I don't know if you saw that with uh, all the direct list. It's going to be direct listing. So, oh. um, so I mean I think that's I think that's fine too. I think other I think having more companies come come public is is good. I don't think it's all bad, but you know, I'm just looking I mean, I'm looking at the performance of most of the SPACs today, that at least the ones that I track. And it was fine. Like it wasn't a washout relative to sort of what all we saw with the you know, with all the, the short squeeze names. So I think on that sense it's it's good. Um yeah. if anything, I if I was a um I wonder about it from the management side. Like if I had a company and I've raised series A and B, if my board tells me you've got to go public, SPAC is the way I choose to do it. And now I'm giving up 20% of my company to a board member's former colleague at a bank who left to run a SPAC. I don't know if I would like that so much as a founder, but being a founder and running a good company is a lot different than being a good investor and creating a good capital structure. So I think that that is also another part of this challenge, you know, for this space. And that's why I don't think SPACs are an asset class because they shouldn't be, because obviously every company that comes public is different. And yeah. just because you come public a certain way, doesn't make it you know similar to anybody else. Yeah, that's true. It doesn't mean that the companies all fall into whatever sectors they fall into, but speaking on those sponsorship fees, I mean, do you think they're, I mean, uh, too high? I mean, I guess everyone has kind of a range on what they think they should be, but the, the 20%, it seems like it should go down over time. Uh, what do you think about that? I mean, I think it will go down over time. And, it, and it, depends on the, it depends on the company too, because, you know, there are some companies that are coming public that probably, and again, I'm going to contradict myself, given the kinds of companies that have come public, the companies coming public today have no business going public. But if we want to foster a market in which more companies at earlier stages do come public, then sure, fine. You're going to have to take dilution as a part of that process. I don't think it's super favorable, again, to the company. I'm not sure it matters so much for, you know, the public market investor. I'm not, I'm not sure that it, it changes a huge deal. Um, and I would say that, well, we're early in it. So we've got a lot of these companies are going to start reporting results and, and 10 Qs and 10 Ks. And then we'll really see what it looks like in a couple of years. But if you look at like the returns of a lot of PE sponsored um, go privates, then re IPOs in the last 10 or 15 years, that's not exactly covering the alternative asset management space and glory, like the returns that public markets got then. Um, so I don't think it's going to be that hard for SPACed companies to end up being better for secondary market investors than the prior iteration of this kind of, you know, liquidity dumping um, did. So, um, but we'll see, it's a bull market now. So everybody's a genius and everything goes up all the time. So I'm, I think it's also better, it's better to come public today than it is to go public in 2006 anyway. Yeah. I mean, if you're confident, you know, in your concept, you got to invest a lot of capital, 
why not right now uh, from a management perspective. But what do you think about the concept companies going public? Because there's a, you know, when someone's going from a private equity or VC side, uh, they have, you know, I don't know, you're not getting the price every day. So that might contradict where, you know, a lot of times in the public markets, if you have a bad few quarters or things are going a little longer than you think, um, your stock can really take a hit. And for someone like, I don't know, I guess a bad, I'm, I'm trying to think of an example, but like, if you're, stack, like a Nikola. Yeah. Like a Nikola. Yeah. Someone like that. Yeah. The, uh, if your company isn't doing that well, and Nikola is an example of like more of a fraud, yeah, but if exactly. it's taking a little bit longer um, and your stock takes a huge hit, that can really derail confidence. It can make it tough to raise capital. Uh, that, and, you know, I don't know about if that'll work in the long run. I mean, if you look at QuantumScape, like the stock went to 120 or whatever, and I think it's closer to 50 now. Now, granted, the SPAC went public at 10, so it's still up from 10 to 50. But yeah, I mean, if you're an employee, like I know a lot of people who work at a lot of different public companies, and especially ones that are um, maybe have come public more recently, let's say. Uh, yeah, everyone watches the stock price. Like every, everyone at the company, that's their most of their net worth is tied up in the stock price. So everyone watches it. But I mean, I would ask you guys, like, do you think that? the public markets are a good, um, in general, in the aggregate, appreciate long-term business prospects well or poorly? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, it, I don't know. Uh, so the problem with SPACs for me is that it, it's allowing companies, like you said, that have no business being public, to go public and raise capital. And then it's becoming like, we need to go public in order to fulfill our business, like, cause we need the money. And that's not for us, at least that's not what we like. We'd rather have a business that's living off its own cash flow. Yeah. Um, but on the long-term mindset thing, I don't know. That's, I think it's a tough question. I don't know if that's answerable. Um, I say like half sometimes, I mean, if you look at someone like Bailey Gifford, they have a really long-term mindset. I mean, they're invested in Amazon, Tesla and all the, other companies and they seem to have a long-term mindset. They have a giant capital base. I think they're patient, uh, but there is obviously a lot of impatient money too. So it's, I don't know if the, the spectrum is changing over time, but these, if you're investing in SPACs and you're, you got to have a long-term mindset, at least with these concept companies. And uh, I, I guess being public helps these companies that have these quote unquote long-term mindsets because you constantly have capital. I mean, if you're doing secondary offerings or stuff like that, you constantly have this piggy bank to tap into where you can go and get more money to then go and try to uh, pay for the costs of these different initiatives that you're trying. So I guess maybe being public helps uh, that long-term vision, yeah, but it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cause I, so I used to be a, a like, and I think the number one thing that my peers in the business media do wrongly is they will, one, take the line that public markets are too short-term focused just because company has to support earnings. And two, say things like, um, it makes no sense that stock X is down after it reported good earnings, like, yeah. you know, or whatever. And, or even, I mean, never use the word irrational because like, who's, you know, who's to say. But over the last like few years, I've become extremely radicalized that public markets are amazing places for long-term business like near perfect allocators of capital. And I understand there's exceptions to that, but 
you know, Ryan, to your point about like quarterly earnings and selling discipline, I think when you look at a company like Snap, like being public saved that business and has created Evan Spiegel as a CEO who is, I mean, he was a kid. He was like, he's the exact same age as me. So he was 24 when it was getting buzzy, 26, I think, 27 when it went public, 28, it was like, oh, he's going to get fired. And now he's, you know, 31, 32. And he's like a really good, I think he's a really good CEO running a really interesting company. And I think that only happened because he was public. And I think that that's sort of the blue sky view of public markets that I choose to have. I choose to say, in general, it will work out. And you ask the question, why is it going to work out? Rather than, I think the reporter um, kind of cynicism tends to suggest, here's why this isn't working now. And I'm not sure. I think for an investor, um, it's probably better to have the former mindset rather than the latter. Even though the latter does make you sound, pointing out mistakes and stuff makes you sound smarter, I think, than saying everything might be fine. But I do think that the capital markets, public markets in general, are very good at um, giving people leeway and they, they do guide you, I think, to the right place. Um, over, I think a big, example, a big example is Netflix, uh, that shareholder base over the last decade. For sure. The, I mean, the management's been really strong at telling the, the proper story, uh, but they told them what they were going to do. They did it. Um, sometimes they made some mistakes, but the shareholder base was patient. So, I mean, that's an example of long-term, you know. Uh, yeah. I, from management's perspective, I'm sure it is difficult to weather the storm of people constantly looking at your earnings on a short-term basis and saying, you're never going to fulfill it. You're never going to get there. Uh, and you do sort of have that risk when you're a public company, um, just that management can sort of get derailed from the yeah. long-term goal. It but, can it can add pressure, like short-term pressure for sure. But if, I mean, yeah, if you do stay long-term focused, the capital markets are, or the public markets are a good place to be. Yeah, and I think also it, it forces you, you know, to use the Netflix example again, it forces you to, um, and I think the story is a great point that um, maybe, and it kind of breaks down too by what sort of management team and where the business is at. Like if you're going to be the CEO of McDonald's, yeah, there's a story to tell there and there's a way to go about doing it. But most investors, most people have a view of McDonald's and what it is. And you can play on the margins with like, oh, now the all day breakfast story is a growth story. And this, you know, the stock has responded to that. But if you're Netflix or, I mean, let's say, let's take us back. Like if you're Fisker, um, and you're Henrik Fisker and you're like, we are going to build um, this beautiful electric vehicle that's going to compete, you know, with Tesla, uh, with Faraday, with all these new cars. Um, the public market will accept that vision if you're really good at actually executing and doing it. And so um, I think for a company like that, it's a great place to be. And I think that the discipline that's required by going out every three months and answering to the public markets, um, it's not even all that much different than being private because you still have board meetings. You're still gonna have key investors calling you. You're still gonna have questions on that stuff. I think sometimes, and this happened in the last decade where you know the VC market, VCs started to hate going public. They hated the process, they hated the SEC. Well, you know, they're still getting updates from their portfolio companies. It's not like you can just go for years without reporting any financials, um, like unless you're Adam Newman or whatever. And so, I mean, I know that it's a big ask to get the IR team ready for the call and take the calls from analysts and do the meetings after the call. And it's hard for the CFO and doing media and all that, but it's not so different 
from being private. And I think it really helps you sharpen your focus. If you're a good company and a good management team, you have a good vision. And I, I don't think it matters what stage in your life you're at. And so I guess it's a long way of saying SPACs are great. Um, even though I'm sure some of the ones that have come public are total frauds now. Yeah, I think, I mean, if 90%, uh, yeah, we were talking about this earlier, like, we were like, all right, if 90% of these SPACs are kind of dead money at their current prices, there's a lot of speculation going on. Uh, but if 10% of them are solid companies and they're still public five years later, I mean, that's some more rocks that we as individual investors can turn over. Yeah. I mean, if you get one, if you get one half Tesla out of all the EV renewable companies that have come public, like, then that's great. You know, I mean, I don't forget all the names of them, but we've, we've had like four or five different CEOs on the show that were like, we had this kid, Austin Russell from Luminar. Um, and there's a couple other Luminar companies. And then there's another company that's, I forget the difference between all the different self-driving technologies, but anyway, they all came public and they all spacked and we talked to all of them and they all said the same stuff. But like, if even one of those companies works right. and like long-term, then, then I think it's probably good for everybody. It's going to be good for investors. That's going to be in, you know, whatever ETF and the NASDAQ and you know, maybe S&P one day and so on and so forth. I mean, if you want to get really idealistic about, you know, like capitalism, it, it helps people <laughs> invest, you know, to bring better technologies to people. But that's a kind of another conversation. It does. I mean, it, uh, the fact that it gives more, it gives investors more options. Like uh, you don't have to choose every option. You don't have to invest in every spec, but it hopefully gets more companies into the public that, are available to us as individual investors. Uh, but let's talk GameStop and Wall Street bets because that was the big headline for the day. I know, I'm wondering if our questions are even <laughs> stale now, but I think we have, we'll, we'll have plenty to talk about. But uh, I guess first things first, uh, this is one of the questions we actually jotted down here. So I'll, I'll say that first and then we can kind of go in and get sidetracked. But uh, obviously, for the longest time, investors said retail can't influence prices. Uh, it's dominated by institutions and that's just the way it's always going to be. Um, I mean, that's obviously changed, right? And I guess the question then is how much can they, how much influence can they have? Is, are, is there like a limit, you know, could they move a hundred billion dollar company? Something like that. Um, I think at this point, um, you know, Joe Eisenthal wrote about this um, in the in his, his newsletter uh, for Bloomberg this morning, meaning Thursday morning. And he said that the point of GameStop is that it now proves that there's essentially no limit on what any stock could do at any time. Um, you know, it reverse crashed up is I think the exact language he used. And so I think that, yeah, I, you could be, I mean, isn't Tesla an $800 billion company that has gotten caught up in something similar over the That's last true. couple of years. So yeah. clearly and that is a lot of that is from the fanaticism of the base of that stock. And though it played out over a somewhat longer time scale than the GameStop stuff, it was fundamentally um, very quote unquote serious people looking at the financials and saying, this thing is a dog. Um, and indeed they did not look great for a long time. And true believers were like, Elon's great. The cars are awesome. Um, and the cars have always been awesome. Um, and I, I know people like to say, oh, the build quality on the Model 3, like it's spotty, the doors don't line up, yada, yada. But the cars are really cool and people think it's great. And so the stock's going to go up. And that's been the story with Tesla. So there's probably no limit to how big a company, um, like no limit to the size of company that could be influenced by retail. And I think the other thing too, and I remember 
writing about this a little bit in the spring and seeing a lot of comments of people like retail doesn't matter because look at the, you know, look at all the money that goes into Bank America or Apple, um, JPM, like your, your uh, Fidelity large cap in your 401k flows, those passive flows. Yeah, that's most of the money that goes in. But I actually think that that makes obvious how little money is going to be required for retail to make an impact. Um, and like you guys know, the Jesse Livermore guy, right, he's right. written about this a lot where the more money that goes into passive and the more money that's aggregated in vehicles that aren't actively managed, the less money is required, the fewer actors are required to mark, to affect and set price at the margins. And so that's also a part of why the moves are happening today. You know, all my money goes into my 401k passively, same with my peers, same probably with you guys and your friends and all of our friends and so on and so forth. So we're not making any individual decisions, but we represent most of the money that's going into the stock market. So it only takes, you know, I don't know what the exact numbers are, but they're probably a lot smaller than you think. They're probably in the tens of millions of dollars in a stock that's pretty big to start shaping the bid and start, you know, I mean, you see it sometimes like stock X is up 7% and you, you'll punch it in on Google or punch it on Yahoo and there's no answer. Yeah. And like, the answer could have been someone bought it and they weren't even that big of a buyer. And so I, I think that that's another part of the story. What's playing out now, like it, it's screamingly obvious that it doesn't take a lot of money to move a stock that's big. And um, I don't know where it goes from here, but I think that that is like, that's just not going to change because last time I checked, I don't feel like this is going to cause me to, you know, change my, how I'm saving for my retirement. Right. Like, I don't right. think, like, I don't, I don't think you guys believe that passive investing is going to get less popular, which means you probably have um, more opportunities for retail and, and all kinds of different stuff. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, the, I mean, I don't know, you got the, the or the combo is like low sh or low float, highly shorted. If there's only 10% of the shares outstanding that are actually actively traded, then I mean... Mm -hmm it's really like it could be a hundred billion dollar company, but if there's only $10 billion worth of shares or even less, um, and there's a lot of uh, big active funds on the other side, like the five or $20 billion funds that are levered up on whatever structure, like 130, 100 long or whatever it is, that, I mean, that can create a very easy formula like we saw with GameStop. And it doesn't have to be, I don't think it has to be a bankrupt company. No. It could be a company that's doing fine that I don't know, they just buy a lot of options on or try to just flood the markets with demand. What, uh, what do you think about uh, coordinated moves? Like what wall street bets provides, you know, mm -hmm. what, I mean, I guess it's not even group think really. It's more like yeah. an attack. Uh, what are your, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I, I think there's the, so the, the one story that's going around right now, which um, I'd be interested for you guys thoughts on this too. Like, this whole common man populism thing to me just smells like such, such bullshit. Like uh -huh. that is, and, and I think that, but, but I think that's sort of where, cause you know, and we were talking before we came on, like we're all getting calls, texts from people that we haven't heard from. I got a text from a you know, college buddy today that I haven't talked to in six months being like, what's up with GameStop? Like 
So, but the narrative around that is that it's this populist uprising, which is clearly like, yeah, yes, I think, right? Yeah, I think, it's, oh, yeah, I mean, okay, uh, okay, one one hedge fund had to liquidate some losses. Um, I think they're okay, uh, but I mean, the thing is, like, okay, they're sticking it to the rich in for like a day, right? But in the long run, if they squeeze the shorts, I mean, everyone loses money. In aggregate. I mean, some people might sell it at the top, but then it just becomes a game of roulette or chicken. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing that's upsetting me is the people that are like trying to be the folk hero, like the, they are, you know, this is finally retail's day. I'm like, but retail in the end is going to be the ones that get hurt. Like they're going to get hurt. The hedge fund manager, whoever it is that owns like co-owns the Miami heat, he's going to be all right. But like the retail investor that, needs the money and decides to do it because his neighbor did it and so forth. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones that are getting hurt in the end. Right. And, and these hedge funds have pensions as their clients. Yeah, right. Right. Um, I mean, maybe you should just be, there should be an uprising. It's two and 20. At least I'd agree with that. <laughs> well, I think there is. I think there is. Yeah. yeah. No, no one, no one charges two and no one charges two and 20. It's like one and <clears throat> it's more like one and one and a half and 15, I guess maybe. Um, yeah. But, it, but like, I guess, so the original question though, about like coordination um, it's to me, the question, and like, this is sort of how Matt Levine is, is writing about it. And I think he's exactly right. You know, so we can just parrot him the way the sec is going to see it or tends to look at it, tends to look at it is there needs to be intent and like, like a plan around, we're going to pick this name for this reason. We're going to plan to buy it at this point and sell it at that point to make this money. And I think that a bunch of people on Wall Street bets talking about a name, memeing a name, some of them are serious, some of them have thought about it, some of them don't care, some of them are just there, you know, for the lulls. Like I that to me is not really coordination in the SEC type definition. Like there is um someone got arrested or I, I forget exactly what the what it was, but the story was someone who worked at SP and was part of the index committee was telling like his buddy to buy call options on a stock that was going to get included in the index. You guys saw that one, right? And like, so that's, that's textbook coordination, right? I feel like if that's how the SEC is looking at cases to prosecute, the Wall Street bets is is not even on the same planet as that because people discussing an idea is not market manipulation. I mean, you guys talk about stocks you like on the show, names that you think are good, bad, indifferent, names you do own, don't own, names you might own. That's not market manipulation, talking about stocks. And I think the distance between market manipulation and the discussion that's being had on Wall Street Bets was extremely wide. I think it's narrowed a little bit this week. But I mean, I think the SEC's task in terms of coming down on someone or some entities is extremely challenging here. And I don't know, like if, you know, I used to work for Henry Blodgett and he was, um, I don't know what I should say about that, but he, you know, Elliot Spitzer made him the example, right. During the tech bubble, someone gets made the example. And, and I think that you could argue it was kind of be, it was kind of like a technicality. You had to pick a person and they had to serve as the avatar of excess in this era. And then that is possibly an outcome here, but I, I don't think as far as, you know, I'm reading the boards, I'm sure you guys are reading the boards, like to call that like coordinated manipulation 
it's like, it's a little rich to me. I think it's people clustering around an idea the way they do on the internet. And um, I think it's part of the way the world is. I, I think that to apply a conspiratorial, you know, lens on it is, I don't, I don't care for that because I don't like conspiracy, conspiratorial thinking because it's, it's very attractive to a lot of people for a lot of reasons. And I think there's too much of it. Yeah. Well, what, what do you think? Uh, so there's a lot of heat on Robinhood right now and people for restricting trading, which, um, you know, granted the ignorance of people, like it's fine. They, they don't know that that happens. Sometimes they make mm-hmm. you, you know, increase your margin requirements and stuff like that. But what are your thoughts on that? And the, uh, well, I guess the hedge funds or whatever, or um, I think there was the CEO of the NASDAQ saying that they wanted to restrict trading on that. Does that, that seems like it's not manipulation, but they, they got to, you know, keep things fair, right? I guess here's a follow-up to that. Do, do you have any sympathy for people that lost money because they couldn't trade out of it uh, when people stopped or when the brokerages stopped? Yeah, I definitely have sympathy for them, but I don't think that it's, I don't think it's morally wrong that someone got stuck in a position and got cashed out at a level they didn't want. Like, I definitely think that Robinhood makes, and I remember you guys talking to Bill Brewster about this, like, and and he knows more about the Robinhood platform than than I do. I don't even have an account. I've thought for a long time I should like open a hundred dollar account just to like see how it works. Oh, it'll blow your mind. We have Uh, got yeah. We both have zero dollar accounts, so okay, maybe like a few pennies. Yeah, I mean, I I really should do it just to like yeah, not even like ten bucks just to see how it works because I so I don't want to talk too much about it. I guess because I've never like been on Robinhood. I just know how it works, and I know a lot of people who use Robinhood. so I have some sympathy in the sense that people definitely do not realize that that's a risk, but it's also a risk if you have your money at E-Trade or Fidelity or yeah. Interactive Brokers, as those people found out. Like people, you know, it's like, I just, I mean, it, it comes back to, um, you know, like freedom ain't free, right? You know, cost of, What's right. the spread? Cost a dollar oh five, right? And so, like, um, so like I and I feel like that's kind of the lesson here. People are like, "Oh, it's a free market system." It's like, well, it's it's a managed free market system. And and I think that the Nasdaq comments, um, I think they're from Adina Friedman. Like, maybe they were a little clumsy, but at the same time, you know, anybody, any company can call the exchange they're listed on and request a halt in their stock at any time. You know, that's what a news pending halt is. You ask the exchange to halt the stock. So people don't, I don't think a lot of people realize those mechanics. Um, I don't think a lot of people realize that when you are like that, the your broker doesn't have a hundred percent of the capital that you might be entitled to at any one time. And so when things like this happen, they can't open the market. We were talking about this on the show this morning. So Thursday morning when, you know, GameStop is doing this, that, the other. And I was like, okay, the market's indicating 30% down, but there's really no market right now. There's no functional market in GameStop shares. The spread is too wide. You can't actually get a clearance at the price that is listed as the quote unquote market price. And I'm sure people got filled all over the place today. Tomorrow, Friday will be crazier. I'm assuming because it's month end options expiration and so on and so forth. Um, so I have sympathy for people who get cashed out of that position, but I also don't think that it's like nefarious that the exchanges and the brokers can manage people's positions individually because 
they're in control of that platform. Like, and I, I guess this is the argument for blockchain or whatever, right? That's yeah. peer to peer. Like stock market is not peer to peer. I have to go through an intermediary and the intermediary can decide if they so choose to make my position to which I appear entitled, not actually the position to which they will make me entitled at some point in the future. Yeah. Uh, I think your comments on freeze and freeze true. Maybe commissions weren't so bad. I think people are starting <laughs> to maybe learn that. Um, well, yeah, I guess. And the thing about the, I think people are realizing that, um, you know, one, when Robinhood takes on your margin for you or however they do it, when they allow you to do immediate transfers and all that type of stuff, um, you know, if something was on the blockchain or something like that, then maybe it wouldn't be as flexible. It, it, the mm-hmm. rules would have to be, since it has no intermediary, it would have to be way more rules-based and maybe it would be safer. Uh, but people, I don't think something like this would be able to happen and, or else the whole system would, all right, wouldn't it collapse, right? If that... Uh, I think the other thing too, to realize is that the, I mean, I don't know, there's probably gonna be people who, who don't like this, but like the capital markets have never been better. Um, like never. It is incredible. You can go buy pretty much any stock you want for free at any time and you get a pretty good mark. And I mean, I think the strange thing and, you know, um, and I've talked to Brad Katsuyama a few times, like, I think what, I think what IEX does is great for their customer, which is an institutional shareholder who wants to move a lot of stock at one time and wants to get a fair mark on that bulk stock. But if any of the three of us want to go do anything in the markets, it's an absolutely incredible, you know, phenomenal, like incredible thing that we could go do whatever we want at any time for essentially for free. And so I think that we get a little bit carried away talking about and have this week, certainly um, about the market's structure or sanctity or whatever, because the old system was, I call a guy who, and I say, what about this? And, or he calls me and they're like, we like you for, I mean, Wolf Wall Street's real movie. That that kind of stuff actually happened. Right. And that is, you know, front load mutual funds, 10% load, 6%. Load. You can still buy a front load mutual fund, which is insane. And the fees on each trade, insane. Um, commissions, like all this stuff that you're just getting your face ripped off before you even have the right to a stock. And so to be like, Robinhood said I had GameStop at 188 and then they sold me out at 166 and I was in at 65 because I read about it on Reddit. And my money went up, you know, one and a half X or whatever, like to be like, I'm getting screwed by the man. I think we should take a step back and be like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) it used to be way worse, you know? So I don't know. We, uh, we were reading up or Brett was reading up on markets like way back when in like the early, like the turn of the century. And they were like, it's been so democratized. I hate to use that word now, but uh, since then, what was the curb markets? And- yeah, there used to be the curb markets and the, uh, gosh, what are those called? Uh, I remember someone like Jamie Catherwood, who's more of an actual expert on this thing, was writing Jamie about those. Knows uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah, the, I forget what it was called. It's like those, it's where the, you're in a, you know, because they didn't have the internet and telephone wires were kind of just getting into place where they would all go to like these, uh, rooms and there would just be this fake ticker going around and you just kind of day trade with it. Uh, but the curb markets, yeah, I mean, there was no listings, there was no SEC, there's no FDIC insurance or what's the other one, the SIPC insurance. 
none of that. Um, and after the Great Depression, I guess it kind of all got fixed. But yeah, the thing about the, you know, all the fees, the, the old commissions that were super high, all the, the management fees on mutual funds and not being able to just trade it from your phone or from your computer. Um, now, you know, maybe you might not get a bid at, you might get cut out a few pennies or fractions of a pennies, but I mean, you can kind of just fix that by putting in a limit order, I think, and uh, your problems are solved. I mean, but you don't even need to worry about the limit order. Like, yeah. think about it. You, you can get on your phone. And, you know, when I, I wrote a story about, um, about that experiment that Ramp Capital did last year about the, you know, the, the Twitter poll thing. And he and I were talking about, um, and he was like, if I was in college and I had a cell phone and I could trade stocks at any time, basically at the, mar- basically at the market price. I mean, that is insane. That's incredibly, like, that's just incredible technology. And I, I think that what is getting lost is, like, I understand it's not a great look for Ken Griffin, who owns the most expensive home in America, who is, you know, has more money than any person probably should ever have. And he's on both sides of the trade, but he's on both sides of it for a fraction of a penny times a couple billion a day. And that's how he makes money. And the cost for that is sometimes it gets weird, but the benefit is it's free and it's pretty close to a fair price. And I just think that that trade-off is an amazing benefit to regular people like us, amazing benefit to retail investors who want to get involved. And I think hopefully we'll get more involved and it's not perfect, but it is such a monumental improvement from the way the markets used to be structured. And if people think the deck is stacked now, um, you know, again, I think any, any history that anybody would ever read about the stock market would prove how wildly favorable the market is today to, you know, to, to, I, don't know, I guess we're consumers, we call it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the famous like Northern Pacific one where, um, the two big investment banks like JP Morgan and the other one called Kuhn and Loeb, they screwed over, um, but it was in the opposite direction. They were kind of like the Wall Street bets where they were trying to flood the market and they were kind of having a battle to own majority stake. And then the short sellers got screwed. I mean, that was true free markets where if you were the most powerful player, you come in and do whatever you, you wanted. Um, I don't know. That, it seems a little fair now. I guess the question is then, do you think it's gone too far? Like, uh, do you think that maybe there should be a little bit of a barrier to entry, like a commission per trade? Or maybe a minimum account balance, something like that. Um I, I think free commissions are I think free commissions are fine. I don't think commissions have gone too far. Like I don't think there's any pulling that back. Like yeah. think about anything in your life that um was a cost and is now free, like getting on the internet. Like AOL is not coming back in business with the discs. Um, you know, like, so that's, that's not happening. Yeah. I think there might be refined rules around account balances. I think the fact that you could have gone on Robinhood and just start trading options is ridiculous. Like, um, me, me and, me and Sam love to joke like, Oh, you can't lose money trading options. Cause like, that is literally what people, that's what it seems like. I think, um, it seems to people like you can't lose money trading options, which is not true. That is not true for the listeners out there, but um, you know, like that's crazy that that's allowed. Um, and again, I, I would refer people back to the conversation with, with Bill about a lot of the problems that a Robin hood presents, but yeah, I mean, the, every, the internet pushes everything as far as it can go till it can't take it. I mean, look at what's happening with social media. I mean, Facebook is trying now to like back out of, 
having anything to do with politics after it took its newsfeed so far that forget about Trump being the president. Like there were people inside the Capitol building because of stuff they saw that, I mean, that's all Facebook, right? But that took years to get to that point. And now Facebook's like, oops, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Or maybe we shouldn't have made it so easy for that to happen. So I don't think that the GameStop episode is even in the galaxy of something as extreme as that from a market's perspective, which means way crazier shit, way, way crazier shit is going to happen in markets before um, something material changes, I think, with, you know, with access, with all the stuff we're talking about, right? The availability of trading and who can do it and how much it costs and all that stuff. So um, I think it's really exciting that that's, you know, Oh, it's been hilarious. And that, that, that's where I think, yeah, like that's where I think it's going. So um, I can't wait to, to sort of see how it ends, but I don't think that, um, I don't think this is even close to a tipping point or a breaking point, like not even, not even yeah. close at all. Maybe I'll be totally wrong. It'll be hilarious actually if the SEC comes down in like two weeks and they're like, we're shutting down all this stuff, blah, blah, and I'm just completely wrong. But nothing about internet culture has su- suggests um I don't know if you guys would disagree, but nothing about internet culture suggests that that's sort of the arc that that consumer subsidies tend to take. No, yeah, I think I mean, that makes sense. I don't think they're going to be like imprisoning Reddit user 1655 for yeah. his take on GameStop. What would you do if you were the CEO? Would you be trying to just do as many at-the-money raises as you could? They have one filed, so I think. Okay. They, they can if they want. So I, it was like Monday or Tuesday morning, Kramer um, – I really like, I really like um, Jim Cramer. I think he gets a bad rap, but I think he's so good at the role he does, which is a very specific yeah. thing. But, but anyway, Cramer was saying like, if you're, you know, management needs to come out and they need to say something, you know? And it was like a, a version of his famous, um, you know, uh, they know nothing rant. He yeah. always kind of falls into that, that yeah. delivery, like cadence he has. So anyway, but he's like, management needs to come out and say something. And I, I would agree. Like, I think it's been crazy that they haven't, GameStop hasn't said anything, but you cannot raise money at this level. Like there's nothing for the company to do with a stock that's now at um, $180 a share or whatever. I think, you know, they're, and they're, they just reported earnings, I think in mid December. So their next earnings report doesn't come out until March. So, um, and I guess it'll be February by the time this episode comes out, but that's still five, six weeks away. So I, I think they have to just, sit on it. Like, I don't think there's anything to do because if you raise capital at 40 bucks a share that you're still hugely improving, like you're still getting a, a, you're still getting so much more capital for the amount of shares you have to issue, right? Relative to what a capital raise would have looked like in um, September, October, November, let alone the summer. Um, And I'm not sure that the fundamentals will make it make more sense to do debt versus do equity. Right. So I think you'll have to come out with an equity raise, but you can't do it at a hundred something. Like you have to wait. So there's really nothing for them to do. Like stories way beyond themselves now. Is there any way that this like ends up hurting GameStop in the end? I guess people say stocks take the uh, stairs up and the elevator <laughs> down. Like, is there any way that, th- and obviously well, this took the elevator, yeah, up, uh, elevator both ways, but uh, I mean, is there any way that they could get hurt out of this? Yeah, you could definitely have like your investor base leave because they think it's too risky to be in the stock. That's obviously a problem. I think in this specific situation, I think GameStop's in a great place because they've already had the activists come in. They've already agreed at the annual meeting to seat 
I think it's three new board members, including, yeah, that's right. including Ryan Cohen, the, the, you know, the chewy guy. So like they've already had that event. So I think they're actually in an, I think GameStop's in an amazing place where for reasons unrelated to their business, they're going to get probably a, let's call it 4X valuation for no reason. Plus they already got a 4X boost in, in valuation or in market cap from the addition of, you know, Ryan Cohen, his team and the activist, you know, kind of comments they've seen in the last few months. So I think GameStop's in an amazing spot from that standpoint, but I don't think any company wants, you know, their stock to get caught up in anything like this because it's reputational damage. But at the same time, like we all agree that GameStop's business of having outlets and strip malls stinks. They know that the business isn't, the business sucks. So they need to change anyway. So it probably couldn't have gotten much worse for the company from a fundamental standpoint. Um, So, but, but yeah, I don't think any company, I don't think any company wants to see their stock up a thousand percent. Like that doesn't, that doesn't make anybody feel good. I wonder if, uh, if this had any influence on like people going to GameStop. I know. I thought about that. Like an actual impact on the business. Yeah. I mean, maybe they'll turn into, I, I, you know, know, there is that like populist movement that we have, we already talked about, but maybe they'll be like, all right, we got to support these guys now because (laughs) they're our martyr in the, in the fight against this. What are they calling the suits? The suits. The suits. (laughs) suits. Yeah. I mean, um, I know, like I'm trying to imagine, I don't think there's one. I don't think there's a game. I don't know where there's a GameStop around me. There's a Best Buy in the corner. I guess I could go there and ask someone about it. But like, I'd love to go into a GameStop and be like, like ask the person at the counter, like, hey, do you have diamond hands? Like, how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm, I'm sure they're getting it. I'm sure they're getting it. Like everyone, oh, yeah. I had a friend who, um, he, and this is, this is last, yeah, last week. Um, he was at the inauguration as a reporter and, you know, he had like his security with him and stuff and they're staying there. He said it was awkward. And then like the stock market came up and like, boom, then their conversation just like was on fire for the entire rest <laughs> of the time they were there. So um, people want to talk. I'm sure every, you go on the street, you can find anybody who has a, has a take on it. Um, I can only imagine what it's like in a store. You guys should go if there's one near you. I, don't well, know. Uh, I think there was one at my old, there was one at my childhood mall that were me and my friends. Used <laughs> to frequent, do, so right? I don't know if it's still there anymore, but right. uh, any more GameStop questions or should we, I think, uh, yeah, I think that covers it. where do you, all right. How about this? Where do you guys think it will settle? Like where right. the stock will just spend a week inside of a 5% range. Wow. Uh, I well, probably like be a while, but uh, 20, I don't know. It's hard to say. I think this goes, I think the momentum starts to go back to where it was uh, like even before this started. Like uh, I think once the selling starts, it's going to take a while to stop. Uh, but, and especially with some of their like notable longs out. Yeah. Cause how much thing, yeah, yeah. So Michael Burry owned like 7% of the shares and he's completely out now. Uh, so that, I mean, I feel like the, the floor goes a little lower because someone like him is not there anymore. So that could be a downside, but I think it's really hard to judge, but it's definitely not going to be a hundred. Um, those diamond hands gone, you know, there's no yeah. telling. Yeah. All right. Let's talk. Uh, we wanted to talk Berkshire and Buffett. Um, Brett, you want to hit the first question? Yeah. I mean, so I don't know. There was uh, I guess this was inspired by, there was a tweet of all the track records of all the famous investors. I think it was a little dated. It might've been like 10 years old, uh, but it had Buffett, you know, with the most impressive, at least I think of like 
23% compounded for 54 years, which is just insane because, yeah. you know, like 15% for 10 years is really good. Uh, but do you think there's ever any going to be anyone that can replace Buffett or are there any candidates in the world today? Or is he just kind of a one hit? There's well, a, not a one hit wonder, but no one's ever going to replace him. Cause there is also all these headlines now about the next Buffett, like, you know, or Chamath is like, do you think anyone's actually going to be like that? Like have that sort of durability over time? Um, I don't think anyone will want to like, so I mean, let's put it in like more fun terms. Like, so in a week, we're going to get Brady versus Mahomes, right? I mean, the thing with, I mean, Mahomes is probably better than Brady like ever was throwing the ball, his mobility, all that stuff. But like the reason Brady did his stuff is because he's Tom Brady, the way he's focused, his drive. I mean, he's a crazy person. You know, he doesn't eat tomatoes. Like he does all this stuff. Warren Buffett is a weird guy. Like, have you guys read the books? Um, I, yeah, I, I read Snowball. He eats ice cream for breakfast, and yeah, uh, like this guy is a this guy is a weirdo. Like, he just sits in his office in Omaha, and I've been out to the meeting. Like, Omaha is a fine city, um, but like, and I I drove over to his house. It's very close to where the Berkshire office is, which is pretty close to downtown where the meeting is. Like, his life is in a three three or four mile stretch. Um, kind of in like Northeast Omaha, I guess. So he just sits there and just does this stuff and he's just focused on his thing. And I just don't see that being something that someone else does. Who's like, this person would have to be a contemporary because what are you guys like 22, 23? Yeah, he, I'm a little older, I'm 24, but yeah, the, he's 20. All right, so we're, you know, within five, six years of each other. Um, do we know anyone like, do you know anyone who let's say they were a billionaire at 40 who would be like, yeah, I'm actually going to block out all the noise. And then I'm just going to keep grinding on it for the next 45 years. And then yeah. I'm going to be a 65 billionaire. Like, you know, all the content now is fire, right? And it's just about, it's, a, it's yeah. about retiring and about chilling and, and whatever. And granted, like, it's not like it wasn't like that in the seventies, you know, I mean, boomers weren't exactly, like only focus and stuff, but to be in the next Buffett, you'd have to just be such a unique person, let alone an, an, a unique investor, which is why it's highly unlikely that um, someone would ride it out that long because people have amazing track records for 20 years, 30 years, and they might retire or they might lose their touch, but they most often retire because 20 or 30 years of killing it is usually enough. Um, not everyone wants to be 89 being the CEO of a $500 billion conglomerate grinding over 10 K's every day, eating McDonald's. Like that's not yeah. what most people want to do. So, um, I mean, Bill Gates to me is a great example of why there probably won't be another Warren Buffett because Bill Gates is an amazing manager. He's a technical founder. He knows the product. He can actually do the stuff, not like Steve Jobs but he learned how to be really good at business. He was a really good, you know, allocator of capital, of ideas. He's, he's basically Buffett. And he decided to tap out and become a philanthropist instead of continue to run Microsoft, which probably would have gotten way big and bought stuff, yeah. spun stuff off, had a little tech empire, all those things. Like, so that to me is why an example probably of why, at least in, in our lifetimes, there probably won't be another Buffett. Yeah, yeah that's agree. true. I mean, you could have like seen someone like Drunken Miller or Drunken Miller. Sorry, not Drunken Miller, but uh, he, I mean, he put up tracker that was on pace. It seemed like he had the temperament and he was insanely smart. His ideas were mm -hmm. great, but 
he put up like a 25 year career. And then I was like, you know what? I'm worth like a billion dollars. I'm going to retire to my family office. I still like to invest a little bit, but for sure. Yeah. PTJ kind of in the yeah. same, you know, same mold. Like you go down, I mean, David Einhorn is kind of that way. Like he's not even like, even Bill Ackman to an extent is in this ballpark because you know, he had the Herbalife episode and then he had the Valiant episode actually was worse for the fund and his capital base went down because of that. And I think, you know, Bill's probably happier managing, I don't know what he has, probably seven to 10 billion, something like that. Like he's probably just like, that's a good amount of money. That's a good number. He can own 3% of a company. I actually don't know what his ownership stake is in like Chipotle, but you know, let's call it a 3%. Um, he could own something like that in a big business, have a say, get on the phone with executives, take an activist position if he wants, but just sort of do his thing without being, you know, Buffett and that that whole deal. So, um, I think there's a lot of examples of people who thought they, I guess they thought they wanted to be Warren Buffett. And then they realized there's a lot more to it than just, you know, sitting on the table with with Charlie. I guess after like 30 years, uh, compounding at 25%, like your capital base is so big that these minor acquisitions are so trivial and Mm -hmm. you're just, your choices are so limited that it's probably not that attractive to most people to be picking from like 20 companies, which one you want to buy outright. Um, Like it just gets tougher. I I see why a lot of people walk away. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, that Berkshire is so funny because like the last, you know, really five, six years, um, like what, what was that precision cast parts they bought in 2015, I think maybe it's 2014. That was like 40 billion. Um, and then after that, it's just every year. It's like, it's the most fun fantasy football game for business reporters to guess like what they have. I remember like for three years, I kept saying, Oh, they're going to buy lows. They're going to buy lows. It's a natural takeover. Like, you know, it's uh, it's good old fashioned hardware synergies with the, you know, the Benjamin Moore business and like all this stuff. And, you know, to your point, Ryan, like he doesn't want to buy Lowe's. It's like, so what? Now he's got this thing. Like he, he can just buy 10% of the company and then sell it if he doesn't like it. Owning it, managing it, running the business is so much harder than um, just sitting on your pile of capital. And, you know, he's rolled up so many things and done so well with them that, um, I don't know, probably just doesn't. That's why he gave the portfolio over to Ted and Todd too, I think. Because it's like, ah, you know, I've seen it all. Um, Maybe yeah, I true. wonder if he was. In, I wonder if he's been in been in the uh, been in the short squeeze though. That, uh, I I I I do not think so. But we'll uh, we'll see. I saw. I mean, I did see that there were some tweets like, "What were they like?" Buffett's you know quiet right now or something suspicious. Oh, or, yeah, I feel like. Uh, I mean, I think uh, was it Ben or Michael Batnick maybe who tweeted, uh, "Like your silence is." Yeah, I think it was Batnick or something. Yeah. And it just. Uh, yeah, I feel like on days like this, I always think about what is Warren Buffett doing right now, and it's just him yeah. probably reading in an attic, like not checking Twitter. Yeah, but whatever. Um, do you think people my age and investors in like their twenties uh, don't appreciate Buffett enough because of his cash drag this decade? Um, what do you think? I don't think so. Sort of there, I think. I think the thing with with Buffett, like if you read like, um, like Larry Cunningham's book, which I'm guessing one or both of you have read, like, or even just go through all the letters, but you know, the lessons of Warren Buffett's more useful because it gets through all of them faster. 
like there's so much in there that's useful to learn that um, I don't think any generation of investors won't read it and appreciate what he did. I, I think there's certainly people who are going to get on his case about kind of underperforming and just sort of not, not being on the ball. Like he's talked so much in the last handful of meetings about all the stocks he missed. And it's like, well, yeah, dude, like, you know, you're talking to your shareholders, like they should be pissed, but um, you know, obviously he controls the whole stock. So it doesn't really matter. But I mean, look, millennials tend to be hard on uh, authority figures. Um, if that makes sense. And that, so I think it's fine. I think 20, I think young, young people um, look at older people and say, Oh, this guy's a clown and you know, world has passed him by or whatever. And I think that's fine. I think that's normal, but I don't think that like, you know, people still read Ben Graham's book. I'm not sure how applicable it is. Um, I think Warren Buffett's old stuff is definitely more applicable than Ben Graham's, you know, than the intelligent investor is. But um, I think people respect him, you know, just enough. But it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because like at the meeting a couple of years, I had to do this thing where I would, I had to go find the first person in line and like ask them, wow couple questions or whatever and i think it was two years ago one of it was like an 11 year old girl or whatever she was like there with her dad and she was like loved investing so i was asking her a couple things and i started to ask her this question about like what did what did buffett miss this year or something or whatever and her dad was like fucking pissed at me and like ended it and was like please leave and like which is funny because like i probably shouldn't ask that question because like who cares but it is very indicative of this sense that people get antsy about his returns and it's like just pick up the most recent annual report and look at the second page where it lists them over time like there's nothing to worry about here just because he's not throwing a fastball at a, a very weird bull market um that a lot of people nailed but I just if you look at the way it happened it was never going to be buffett's thing anyway yeah yeah because he's built this over what probably almost 60 years now um, and he's not going to throw it away when someone's like, Hey, you're not generating alpha. You need to go into this levered strategy on, uh, I don't know. What are they? Some call options on some, some big <laughs> yeah. name. You're going to buy out of the money Tesla calls. Yeah. Oh. Something like, something like that. And he's like, I think, I mean, we've got our, you know, fortune <laughs> here. I'm not going to ruin on some crazy thing. I mean, we're all doing fine. But it's even like that he wouldn't even buy Tesla at all. Forget about the the calls. Like, you know, the whole market. Um, and uh, there's an, an invest, like the best episode where the guest, I forget who it was, was like the last decade was like West Coast style of like growth. It was like, this company is going to grow and it's going to be the future. And they might not have great earnings power now, but they, they may in the future. Um, whereas the more East Coast style, the Buffett style, the CFA style is well, how much is a company earning in profits and how much of that over time can I expect to get returned to me as a dividend, which is just not the world that I'm not so sure that we're ever going to live in that kind of a world again. But Buffett is thinking there, he's sitting and he's doing the math in his head. And he's like, how much of business X's cash will come back to me as a cash payment over time that I can then reinvest into something else. And this market just has not been about that. And, um, so that's, you know, so that's where he quote unquote missed, but I don't think it's like totally, I don't think that means that he doesn't get it. Like, I think he knows why he didn't bet on these companies, but his system worked so well and didn't require him to hold his nose on a growth stock. 
Um, so he's not, you know, he's not going to start now. Yeah, no, I totally agree. All right. Before we get to our wrap ups, uh, we are going to do sort of a Mount Rushmore type thing. Who are your top three all time investors? Well, I think Buffett's fine. Um, yeah, obvious number one. It's gotta be, I mean, it's gotta be Soros, right? Um, when you break a currency peg, I think it counts as like a, like a goat move. Like that can't really be, yeah. really be undone. Um, and then honestly, you know, Roaring Kitty, like, I don't know. I might not have Roaring Kitty in mind, but he's not, he has, I mean, if you back test over the last few months, maybe he'll, he's beating everyone. So, no, so the reason I, the reason I, I was thinking about this and I was like, these guys are come up with like some hipster names that I don't know of. And I'm not going to be able to keep up with that. So I'm just going to pick the two most bland uh, Mount Rushmore's and I'll let you guys fill in like whatever, um, whatever like edgy nouveau investor picks that you guys pulled out of your bags. Yeah. I mean, I got to put Buffett one. I got to put Buffett one and then I got to put, I mean, I don't know. I like drunken Miller. I think you keep calling him drunken Miller. Drunk, drunk and Miller. uh, But yeah, I, I like his style. I don't know. I think his track record was phenomenal. And he kind of was one of the reasons why Soros did so well um, when they were a team together. Um, I don't know. My third one, it's it's tough to put down. I mean, I don't want to say Munger because. Well, I'm going to take Munger. I'm going I'm to Charlie and Warren and uh, I'm reading Char- poor Charlie's almanac right now. He's up there for me. Uh, how is that? How is that book? Oh, I never great. read it. It's not like a story. It's yeah, like uh, it's, all his speeches and stuff. Um, but there's there's like excerpts from like people that knew him and that kind of stuff in there as well. Um, but good. I like Jesse Livermore too. I know he wasn't, he's probably the best trader of all time mm-hmm. and he, he might not apply to today, but he, he maybe that's not kind the of the pseudonym. He's the, uh, not the pseudonym. No, no. Uh, he might be the best anonymous economist of all time though. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but the real Jesse Livermore, I mean, he, he, built like three fortunes yeah it ended up poorly with the great depression but yeah i don't know i mean he's kind of like he would be or go ahead no i was gonna say then you know the most modern pick i would i would i would say tepper if you're gonna pick someone like Mm, recent like it has to be like a new person um but yeah i mean i think i'm i'm really interested you know i've talked about this like from the media perspective with a lot of people that you know, when I started coming up, you hear about like, these are the big investors, you know, like a big moment in my career was the Icon Ackman fight on CBC. But like, it's been a decade almost. And like, it's kind of all the same people hanging around that you're talking to. Like Lee Cooperman's on CNBC today, losing his mind about, (laughs) um, you know, I don't know what he, I mean, he was just kind of doing his thing. Cause like, I don't know, he's got to be in his eighties, right? Like, we're still bringing these guys out. It's the same. We're playing the same hits. And so I don't know what the next decade looks like, but we can do the math on a lot of these people and um, they're probably not going to be around for the next decade. So I don't know where, and, and then the guys in their fifties that are available, like we can name them on one hand. Like it's Ackman does some media. Dan Loeb is around sometimes. He's on Twitter now. He's on, he's on Twitter. Einhorn's off the scene. Um, Steve Cohen tweets now, but you know, he's off the scene. Um, Mike Burry doesn't really do media. Like, I don't know what Steve Eisman does. Like there's not a lot of people that are available. Um, 
that have these big records that we're talking about. So maybe it's, you know, maybe it's my job to like try to figure out who that is and surface these people. But it's been interesting that like, it's, it gets late early in that you're still talking about the same people. And all of a sudden it's been 10 years and all of a sudden these people are like 85 and it's like, all right, well, who's the bench? And I don't really know who the good answer is there. It'd be interesting to see if uh, how people look at, you know, Kathy Wood and Chamath in a decade yeah. from now, I'm not rooting for them to fail or anything, but it seems like they're being very aggressive. Um, and maybe that we'll look back and be like, all right, they were, those are the two, you know, people the younger people that ended up being the the top ones but i'm not sure how it plays out you know i guess i guess you're i guess you're right it's sorry just it's the vcs that's the answer oh right right Mm. like i guess i guess we i guess we missed it yeah we talked around it like it's it's all those guys shamath mark andreessen bill Gurley. um you know go on go on down the line like that's who that's who's today's version of that so yeah i agree um, i agree all right. Wrap up questions. Uh, what's one financial saying that you disagree with? Um, I disagree with, um, I guess I disagree with the, uh, more, there's more buyers than sellers. Um, technically there's always the same amount of buyers and sellers on a, you know, right. technically every transaction clears one-to-one. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know if I disagree with it cause I like you saying it as a joke cause it is funny. Um, is a way to describe Te- technically it's also not technically like untrue um, but uh, it's just it's just kind of the one that like come comes to mind I mean like I said before I think any invocation of rationality or irrationality you know market can stay irrational longer than you can say liquid I think that's kind of stupid because I work like to me um, the market is syllogistic it's reflexive right to use the Soros thing and so the market price is the market price. And for you as an individual to say that the market is irrational is very self-important because there's a lot of information being aggregated in market prices. Um, and so just because the market can say irrational longer than you can say solvent, uh, that's, that's still your problem, buddy. That's not the market's problem. And I think people frame it around, it, it's still, it's, it, they, they frame it around this thing of like, well, I'm not wrong because the market is actually stupid. And that's, you know, yeah. I don't know if that's the way to say it. Yeah. And we can yeah, get a whole yeah. can of worms with the Fed well, stuff yeah. with, yeah. with those people too. <laughs> but uh, I'll hit the last question. What's one piece of advice uh, for anyone starting out? Well, we usually say investing. I guess maybe investing journalism would be a better answer. Yeah, or, or investing. Or investing yeah. in general. Tweet. Tweet. <laughs> Serious. Answer. Like, you go on Twitter, like you can, might take some time to figure out who to follow, interact with people. Eventually, like there are people that I interact with on Twitter that I've never met. I don't know who they are. They're anonymous, but like people over time, they just tweet at you. And for a while you ignore it, you don't see it. And then you're like, oh, you start faving and then you start replying. And then all of a sudden people are just in the circle and you can get the feel of the market. You can get the feel of the media. You can get everything from being on Twitter. And, um, I wish I had been a lot more on Twitter earlier in my career, but you know, it worked out in the end. But I think that um, I think people who, because investing and being in the media are, are similar in that you have to know everything that's going on all the time, even though you don't really want to, like you just have to, and like you find it out on Twitter. So tweet more, post more, keep posting. All right. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I like that advice. All right. That is Miles Udlin. Miles, thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks boys. Appreciate it. 
Welcome back in. Thanks again to Miles for coming on the show. You're welcome anytime you want. Uh, but we have hot water next. I have two. Okay, I have two as well. Okay. Uh, decency, normalcy is in hot water this week. Because <laughs> wow, really, uh, really meta there. I know. I, I can never figure out who to put down. It's just funny. Uh, in San Francisco, you can officially get a verified badge crest on your actual house if you're an influencer public figure or represent a brand i think you may have been caught up into a joke here no. that might not be real Are it was sure? a tweet uh some of the co- uh, i was unsure the page is called blue check homes and it looked real oh it's not a joke all right well there right now okay bluecheckhomes.com get a verified blue badge on your home hmm? it oh this is a really well done prank if uh, if they do it, if it is well, if it's a prank, that's funny. Good These prank. If not, uh, that's tough. It's going to invite the angry mob. Once Who people can- rise up against these influencers, you know those like uh, the the really un- the ones that have no like common sense about how like uh, what you call it. Like you know how there's there's that one Instagram. There is I think it's a model, Chrissy tone Teigen. Deaf tone deaf. Yes, they're extremely tone deaf. Like uh, it's it reminds me of Parasite. The movie when the guy's sitting angrily in the car with the the mom like texting in the back. This this is just to track those mobs, you know, with the guillotine. But here's what I'm reading: Who can apply? Question mark. Uh, homeowners who are prominent executives, thought leaders, influencers, authors, and journalists who represent prominent organizations include companies, brands, nonprofit organizations, and media organizations. Check, 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 and check. We are currently <laughs> only servicing homes in the Bay Area with plans to expand to other cities this summer. It's real. I, I'm pretty sure this okay, is real. Okay, that's cool. Well, once they move up to Seattle, we're in business because we are all those, right? <laughs> thought. I, Wait, I'm a thought leader. I can't believe thought leader. That's, you can't. It's a terrible whatever. word. If all you right. don't use that word ironically, uh, you, it's a red flag. It might be a red flag for me. Uninvestable. Okay. <laughs> uh, Robin Hood is in hot water. Uh, surprise, we all surprise. Yeah. This is not for the average. This isn't for the reasons you're probably thinking of. Uh, so I'm sure a lot of people heard that uh, the employees had to work long hours because it was sort of a grueling week. Um, they were under a lot of fire, under a lot of scrutiny. And a lot of the employees were also upset and thought they were apparently thought they were being uh, not were not working in the best interest, I guess, of some of the users. So Robinhood uh, – the company got everyone forty dollar credit to DoorDash. Boom! Yeah. That is that's yeah. one way to quell an employee uprising. I, I think there was I an Onion article written over it. No, it was an Onion article um, from like four years ago, making fun of something like that that hadn't happened yet. But they made the Onion exist. It's kind of like those Simpsons in real life thing. Oh, tech. I, I dude. Imagine Silicon Valley's insane. Like seventy two hours straight. Just to like support this demand, and then they're like, "Don't worry, DoorDash, you got forty dollars credit." Silicon Valley's—they're getting paid insane. so much, and it's forty dollars. Like, come on. Yeah, right. tell Citadel to front the bill. Um, what do you have? Okay, uh, I've been hot water for saying Clubhouse Media Group was a turd. Remember when I talked about how that you know influencer house that had no revenue, uh, you know, yeah. was valued at like three hundred million dollars. Well. Remember last night when that viral social app Clubhouse uh, had Musk on? Yes. Okay. And it's named Clubhouse. 
So today, Clubhouse Media Group, which, to be clear, has no association with the audio app Clubhouse, is up over 100% and has a valuation over a billion dollars. Oh, you're talking about the, like, TikTok housing Yeah, that's a total, it's nothing. It's just a shell company that was owned by that Chinese healthcare company that I talked about the other time. Uh, Yeah. This is the number one reason. It's a Zoom technology thing. I think this is... Probably the biggest reason that I don't believe in efficient market hypothesis. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That may be like GameStop as well. But uh, I mean, there's no – no one can look at that and be like, nah, it's efficient. Yeah, efficient markets. It depends. That, but if you describe it as markets are priced efficiently all the time, yeah. I mean, honestly, that's been disproven for many decades. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else? Uh, antitrust legislation from 100 years ago. So ExxonMobil and Chevron have reportedly had merger talks, which would finally bring the Standard Oil family back together. Oh, man. It would just be the whole thing because Exxon and Mobil were both baby Standard Oils, and then they merged. I wonder if there's any Rockefeller descendants uh, looking for employment. <laughs> I think they're all fine with those. Uh, they're all doing just fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, the amalgamated oil company. Or what yeah, did they no. call them all the, St- all the Standard Oil Trust. Yeah, they call them the amalgamated copper, amalgamated steel, United States, U.S. steel. Very, very creative names. Uh, like we've talked about, if those, if those Silicon Valley companies, the tech companies came in back then, and if you were like, this is an Uber, they'd be like, are you an alien? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, buy, sell, hold. That was it, right? Yes. All right. Buy, sell, hold. The theme this week is Wall Street bets stonks, uh, except focus on the business, not on the stonk. Right. GameStop, I will. AMC, BlackBerry, which would you buy, sell, or hold? I have no idea. Uh, Forget about the stock. <laughs> just the businesses? Yeah. Or on a neutral cash flow valuation or whatever it would be? Yeah. Uh, well, isn't BlackBerry getting into like a different business? They've done it already over the last five years. I know a lot of yeah. people have talked about that, so I'll probably go Cyber with them. Cybersecurity, I think. Yeah, something like that. They like transition to software or something, but don't quote me on that. And I would never buy any of these without actually researching them. Uh, so I will go with BlackBerry and then probably hold AMC because they were able to raise all that equity and pay off all the debt and stuff like that, right? So good for them. Management was pretty smart, although theaters probably won't, you know, not Reopening a growth business. Play. Reopening play. Yes, not priced in. Definitely not priced in. Uh, GameStop is, yeah, obviously, yeah. Sorry. I, don't, I feel like GameStop could have been all right, but I feel like this incident might be the demise of the business. Um, I don't know yeah. why. I don't know how, but I feel like it could result in that. Then I get an earnings bump just from people being like, "Support the cause, arm the rebels." Mm, congratulations. <laughs> okay. Uh, anecdotal evidence. Um, I have two, but they're kind of bland. Okay, then you go first. Okay. Uh, didn't this stuff kind of make you bullish on Charles Schwab? The company? Yes, yes. I we we very... were talking about them again. We have we don't own this at all, but we were talking about them at thirty nine dollars a share, which was a great multiple. They're already up a ton. I mean, yeah, I think they're There's like a permanent quality. business. Yeah, I don't know, it just made me rethink. It just made me rethink about it. Um, uh, well, they were down on the news, and that did not make sense. Yeah, that makes no sense. But my second one, I'm sure a lot of people, if you're listening to this and you're into finance, you probably got a lot of texts and calls from people last week that have never been interested before. Oh, there's probably someone that I know that's listening that has been texting me, yeah. Yes. I, I 
got those as well, and it made me realize how terrible of a teacher I am. Because yeah. when people like, I don't know what to say. I'm pretty when bad they're like, too. oh, you know, I'm looking to like five x my money. I'm like, okay, yeah. So the way to do that would be dollar cost average into an index for the next twenty years. People don't want to hear that. No. So well, I don't I was, know what to tell them. I was talking to someone. I was like, hey, look at this. They're giving up with an idea. It wasn't a bad idea or anything. And I was like, well, you know, you kind of got to have like a year time horizon because the short term, you really don't know what's going to happen there. Like a year? That long? I was like, yeah. It's not every day. <laughs> that sounds, yeah. No, it's tough. It's I mean, the short term for us. Like, yeah, you, like <laughs> yeah, you kind of got to gotta let people kind of make the mistakes. I mean, it's not like people are being dumb. You just got to be patient. You know, you come in thinking, all right, I'm going to make all this money right away. And that's just not how it works. All right, what do you have? All right, what are your thoughts on the short seller backlash? Um, it seems like that it is just, it's like the army of the, the mob, the angry mob is just going after the wrong people, right? Because short yeah. sellers in general, you know? Yeah, I mean, okay, I put this out there and I got, a, I did get a lot of backlash for it because, you know, I actually like Toby Lucky. I like the Shopify business and what they're doing and I put out like, you are either – if you're defying short sellers, if you're saying these are like terrible people and they, all they want is the demise of de like capitalism, I, I you're think you're doing that in your own self-interest because I would – first of all, it, it feels like you're hiding something. Like you don't want them to – so the way I say it, you're either short selling for uh, – because you think something's a fraud or you think it's overvalued. If you think it's overvalued, you're basically just trying to capitalize – on asymmetrical knowledge, right? So how is that any different than going long? Uh, it, yeah. As long as they're not new shares, it has no influence on the business. Yeah, you're not preaching. You're preaching to the choir here. But um, if you're shorting on valuation and then calling it a fraud, yeah, I guess that's... Oh, yeah, yeah. That's Those, I mean, the sorting in the wrong way. What Citron used to do... Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's not smart. But if but it's... If the you people think that are holding, a fraud yeah, wholeheartedly the, and you say it, that's how you prevent frauds. Yeah, if you're if you're looking at 13Fs and looking at who's shorting, you know, whatever they're holding over a long period of time, it doesn't matter yet. If the business is fine, it'll be fine. If uh, it's a fraud, short sellers are great at, at getting frauds out of the way. I would I love that they don't have, you know, they're identifying companies. Like I love following all the short sellers, not because I short stuff, because if they're onto something, if all the smart short sellers I'm looking at like, you know, Janos, uh, Mark Cajotes, that go down the line, if they're looking at stuff or they're tweeting or writing or talking about how, hey, well, people should be worried about this, I'm short this, I'm like, all right, if I own that or we own that, yeah. I'd be like, all right, put up the red flag, maybe we missed something here. I mean, it, they're great uh, detectives. I don't like, People are like, well, you're betting against the economy. That's, no, no, no. You're, or you're unpatriotic. Like that makes no sense to me. Yeah, I agree. Criticizing, uh, whatever. All right, you should be. You should be against. You know, Citadel. Yeah, you can have an. You can be angry against Citadel. You can be angry against uh, funds using too much leverage that could, you know, have ripple effects across the economy. Uh, but to be bad at shorting in general, it's just no reason. Uh, and speaking of that, people talking about this topic on CNBC. I saw that they had Ja Rule on this morning, a great financial oh analyst, um, which really made me think back to the Dave Chappelle bit, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, the help me Ja Rule thing. But the, is there, yeah, I don't know. I feel like CNBC should just be blocked out. 
from any fundamental investor's mindset. They, I, they've lost me at Mad Money, Options, Lunch, or whatever, you know, all that stuff. It, it just, I don't know, it just not, it's not helping. I like Bloomberg, though, but... And Yahoo Finance. And Yahoo Finance. Shout out, shout out Miles. But. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think there should be a financial media outlet that's allowed to have Ackman and Ja Rule on. <laughs> you know? Ackman's fine, but... No, if you're going to go that route, go that route. I mean, they also get Buffett on. Oh, yeah, Becky true. Quick. Yeah, but, but no, Yahoo Finance has that. But then they can also have Jaw Rule on. That, that shouldn't overlap. Yeah. Uh, is that all? Is that, <laughs> that, that is it. Okay. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks again, Miles, to coming on the show. Um, promo code CCM. Promo code CCM. New picks out. Seven we run a fund now. Arch Capital is the name, by the way. And yeah, so you know, don't take our advice. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Any uh, stocks discussed on the show may be held oh, in, you know, gosh, by us or our clients. We got to update that as well. It's, we're, we're going on autopilot now, but yeah, we'll okay. get back to it. All right. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.